Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. Today, Ben, the co-host and co-creator of this podcast, will be introducing us to black walnut alley cropping systems. The subject of his master's thesis research at the Center for Agroforestry at the University of Missouri. Ben's thesis focused on a polyculture of black walnut and winter wheat grown in the Midwestern United States. When choosing trees and grains to combine in agroforestry systems, there are a surprising number of plant characteristics to consider. Stick with us today to hear all about it. All right, so we're back at the Forest Garden Podcast, and today we're going to be doing a little co-host interview, I guess is the way you'd call it. Recently, Ben had a paper published on his thesis research, the first chapter of his thesis. It came out a few months ago, actually, I guess back in October, and we've been talking about how we should do an episode where we just sort of, where I interview Ben kind of about the topic and I will learn a lot. So now we're finally getting around to it. Happy to be in the hot seat and get interviewed by you this time. And then we'll have to find another topic after for me to interview you back. Yeah, maybe when my thesis is released in like another year or two or whatever. And I think a, something that's important to point out is that like when you finish grad school and you like finish your thesis, that's like the it's sort of like the beginning of publishing. Like when your thesis is done, suddenly it's out there in the world and everyone can access it. But then you start submitting it to journals and the process of doing that can take a while. So that's why we're talking about this in 2024, when you actually finished back in, in what, in 2022? 2022, yeah. Yeah, it's been kind of nice because it's nice to see all this work that I, I did as a grad student. I mean, it's it's still available online, whether it's published or not, because the university holds it in their archive for people to view. But it's nice to see it come a little bit more into the limelight and a little bit more into the the public view uh, when it's when it's published. And I've never had a paper published before, so it was really nice to see some of my thesis work put into agroforestry systems, which is a, a journal actually edited by and, and put on by the, the Center for Agroforestry at the University of Missouri. And so it's very relevant because my paper is about agroforestry. It's about alley cropping. All right. So let's dive into it. I guess I'm, I'm going to pretend I have no idea who you are and I don't know anything about you or your research. <laughs> Tell me why your research was important especially in the context of the Midwest where you uh, carried it out. Wow, I feel like I'm at my like, uh, defense again. So I first heard about agroforestry as I was interested in tree crops in general. Just, just from a, a novel point of view, I liked to learn about new foods and new ways of growing. Uh, but when I started to read Eric Tonsmeyer's book, several of his books, particularly The Carbon Farming Solution, I started to understand the, the connections that could be made between growing trees and, and uh, help mitigate climate change. And so I came in through definitely the agricultural side of agroforestry, and I've sort of ended up on the forestry side, which is kind of funny, kind of went all the way through that word. But essentially, agroforestry is the intentional combination of trees on cropland or trees on pasture land too. So it also could be silvopasture, which we could we could briefly touch on as well. And the idea is that there's several different benefits to incorporating trees on the cropland, but not the least of which 
is improving the carbon sequestration rates of cropland. Typically, cropland agricultural land is a source for carbon. It's actually releasing carbon into the atmosphere as the soil is being tilled, as machinery is being used, crops are being harvested. And the idea is that uh, anything we can do to help uh, make it less of a source or maybe even make it a sink where it's pulling carbon from the atmosphere uh, is going to be something really important in the coming years. There's many different ways you can do that in terms of changing agricultural practices, cover crops, composting, all that good stuff. But agroforestry is a really unique solution because it offers, like I was saying before, a multitude of other benefits too. So let's see, there's a lot of great resources on the different types of agroforestry. I probably won't be able to cover all of them, but the one that that I focused on uh, mostly in my work was alley cropping. And so alley cropping is a very classic form of, of agroforestry where you're putting trees onto cropland, uh, typically in, in rows where the annual crop or the grain crop, uh, and sometimes they can be perennial crops are grown in between the tree rows. Some of the other benefits besides the carbon sequestration of incorporating the trees onto cropland are reducing uh, water erosion, which is a big problem on, on agricultural land because those tree roots are holding the soil in the ground. Another benefit would be for wildlife habitat. Even though you might only be adding one species, you might just be adding chestnut or you might just be adding ice cream bean if you're in the tropics. You might just be adding one species tree into one species of crops, but ideally you'd be adding more and it'd be a polyculture. But if even if you just add another layer onto, onto that landscape, you're increasing the, the biodiversity, the insect life, the bird life that can exist. Uh, and if you've been to the Midwest U.S. or really anywhere where there's mass uh, agricultural land, it's not, there's not very much wildlife habitat. So anything we can do to increase the niches that are available to wildlife can be really impactful, I think. Uh, even with the benefits, though, there's, there's some considerations when you're combining different plants together. And so uh, obviously there's going to be competition if it's not done correctly. But uh, what my work focused on is how can we you know, really consider these uh, competitive factors and try to design the system so that it, the competition is either low or in some cases it's there's collaboration between the species or uh, uh, complementarity is, is probably the better word to use there. And that's when the land, that, that one acre square that you have, produces more when you combine the two species together than if they were separate on their own square acre. And that's, that's really fascinating to me because that means that there's actually those collaborative forces that are coming together that are partitioning resources and actually making the land more productive and not less, which I think is the main criticism to agroforestry. And it's a good criticism because, you know, there's plenty of situations where if you're incorporating improper combinations of trees and plants or you're growing them at the wrong time or the wrong spacing, there's actually going to be high levels of competition, both underground for uh, moisture and nutrients, and then above ground for, for sunlight. That, that's really what the bulk of my work focused on. It's very specific. In, in grad school, they want you to specialize. So my work looked at black walnut alley cropping systems, specifically with grain crops like winter wheat and barley. And the reason why we chose that combination is because it's something that's actually being done in, in parts of Europe and has been proposed as, as a system that could work in the U.S. with black walnut, which is our native walnut species. You know, there's, like I said, different forms of competition, but the 
the type that, that I focused in on was the above ground competition and how we can design and choose plants accordingly that will reduce the amount of competition. So we get that, that high level of complementarity. They call it the, let's see, the land equivalency ratio, the LER. If it's higher than one, then it means that the land is producing more with two species than it would be if those two species were grown separately. And then I'm sure if you added a third or a fourth, you might even be able to get higher LER ratings. Okay, so where should we dive in? Okay, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of things. I was rereading uh, the chapter that was published on Springer, and there's a lot of little details I want to kind of pick out of you. Sure, let's dive in. I was actually, one thing that really stood out to me was how many precedents outside of the U.S. there are that you cited for uh, alley cropping systems. So you listed Chinese chestnut with soybeans in the Yunnan province of China, apricot with wheat in the Northwest region of the United States, apple with soy and peanuts in the lowest plateau region of Asia, and winter cereal grain traditionally grown in alleys between tree rows of sweet chestnut in Spain, rows of poplar, black locust. I mean, it just, I was kind of blown away because I didn't realize that alley cropping as an agroforestry system was so prevalent throughout the world and just really kind of lacking in the United States. Me neither. I didn't realize it either. And, and what I learned is that the rest of the world is quite a bit ahead of the U.S., unfortunately. Well, fortunately for them, but unfortunately for us, we haven't really been emphasizing polycultures, crop integration anywhere near as much as other parts of the world. Um, and I think I think part of that is, you know, these were a lot of these were traditional practices when industrial fertilizer and external sources of, of nutrients and water were were less available. And so uh, they're a lot less resource intensive. But since we had for at least, you know, for, for a while in the U.S. history, we've had really cheap access to resources, subsidized resources to grow in monoculture. We didn't really have to rely on polycultures and alley cropping to, to secure those resources. Yeah, and so maybe we should just sort of touch on the importance of why the diversification of these monoculture fields is important from a perspective of a farmer. I mean, there's wildlife benefit, there's many, many benefits in terms of soil, carbon drawdown and all the rest, but like from a farmer's perspective, there's an economic side too, in terms of diversifying your crops and diversifying your income. Can we talk about that a little bit? Like why was black walnut and winter wheat a choice through that lens? Well, in, in France, where a lot of the, the walnut wheat alley cropping work and uh, research has been conducted, it was really in integrating the grains into the trees as opposed to the trees into the grains. And that was because, you know, the, they knew that they wanted to be growing timber and walnut. There was typically like a hybrid between the, the Juglans regia and the Juglans nigra. Uh, and sometimes it's just Juglans regia, sometimes just Juglans nigra. And then there are other species too within the Juglans genus, but they would essentially use these, these walnut species for really high quality timber. Black walnut is probably one of the highest quality timber species that can grow in, in cold climates. And so they were growing these trees and, and the idea, and it's a pretty natural idea, it's saying, okay, between, for the first two decades, you know, you're not going to see, uh, well, especially the first decade, you're not going to see that much competition. You're not going to see that much shade within the alleys cast by the trees because they're small. The unique thing about the winter wheat was that, you know, it's, it's seeded in the fall uh, or the early winter. And then 
it's harvested in late spring or early summer. And so there was this period of time, specifically with walnut, uh, that was observed where the walnut is not producing any shade in the spring, while all the other trees, if there's chestnuts around or oaks around, they're all going to have their canopy. The leaves will have emerged fully, but there's a delay in the juglans genus. Because of that, it works really well with these cool season grasses, cool season grains, because there's going to be a lot less competitive forces. So they, they figured it out in France and similar systems around the world. But uh, for some reason, or maybe for some known reasons, the U.S. really has lagged behind uh, because of those factors we talked about earlier. So in terms of the phenology of black walnut versus other species, could we talk about dive into that just a little bit deeper? Because chestnut is something that people talk about, you know, it's very popular in agroforestry circles. And there's people planting chestnuts all over the country, especially on the East Coast. For me, in terms of like the why there, you know, I think of just how much easier it is to crack open a chestnut from the burr and then, you know, process it versus black walnut. But for you, the choice was purely related to the the amount of light that's going to get through the canopy and mm-hmm. be able to be accessed by the lower level grains in the system. What other trees were looked at? Or, or like, was there any sort of conversation about what other trees you might have chosen besides black walnut before that was made available as like the combo? Well, I mean, for the region that I was studying in, in, in Missouri, I mean, you have pecan, you've got chestnuts, you've got walnuts. Uh, hazelnuts that you can grow as well uh, as far as the native species. Um, you could there's plenty of other non-native fruit trees that that could be incorporated, but really it was focused on those and of those, black walnut by far is the latest leafing. And so phenology, uh, there's probably a more scientific definition that I, I don't have in front of me, but typically it's used to describe various, physiological events of, of plants and probably all living things throughout the season. So phenology in, in a, a tree species will be when the leaves emerge. It's when the flowers emerge, the fruits emerge, and then ripen. And sometimes uh, in certain cases, there's different phenological events for dropping of the fruit. Like it's the crazy thing that I, that I learned from studying one species for two years or two and a half years and talking to some people who studied them for two decades is there's there's really precise definitions, precise wordings for all the different phenological events, for all of the different anatomy of the trees. So there's many different parts of phenology to look at, but because we're looking at specifically the light competition, then of course the main governor of that is the leaves, the timing of the leaves, and there's different stages. Basically, I think day one of my grad student work, I went out and got up into a ladder Basically, the trees didn't have any leaves on them yet, but they had little uh, like swollen buds. And there's a stage for that. There's stage zero. And then, you know, you'll come back. That might have been a Monday. You come back on a Friday. You might see a, a little tiny leaf emerging from that swollen bud. And that might be a stage two or a stage three. And there's a, uh, a photo guide that can help you. Um, and so what, what I found was really fascinating. And I didn't realize this until I, again, studied one tree species for multiple growing seasons and observing an entire collection of that species that even within the Juglans nigra genetic pool, there's, you know, a ton of different phenological timings. So, you know, there's certain cultivars that will leaf out in the end of April and some 
leaf out in mid-April or early April, and some don't leaf out until the middle of May. And that alone, it could create a really wide swath of different patterns on the ground of shading throughout the, the growing season for the winter wheat, for the barley, those types of species. And until my work, I wasn't aware of, of very many experiments that were actually trying to look at the timing of those of those leaf out events and then also measuring the light underneath all of these trees in a really systematic way. But it was really it was really something else to like walk through these orchards of grafted trees from around the US. And you could almost see where they came from from how they were leafing out. So for example, the the trees that were coming from more higher latitudes, maybe like middle of Michigan or maybe southern Wisconsin or something, those trees are going to have a lot later time period for their leaf out event because what does a black walnut tree want to do? It wants to avoid the frost in the spring. And if it's from a higher latitude, then it's going to have a later period of, of when the frost free date is going to be in the spring. So you could see you know, the, the origin and this was a presumed origin, but it seemed to track pretty well. I mean, the cultivars from higher that we knew that were from higher latitudes were leafing out late, and the ones from more southern latitudes were leafing out early. And we could use that variation of that phenological trait to design these alley cropping systems to say, we want to use cultivars that are, A, really precocious, meaning they, they produce early for the farmer, they produce lots of nuts, that they're vigorous, they're disease resistant, but then also we want to look at the cultivars that are going to leaf out late so that they can be planted with a winter crop. My work found that there was quite a bit of difference. There was basically a twofold difference in the, the leafing date. So it's about 25 day difference between the early, the earliest cultivar and the latest cultivar. And there was a couple photos that I took. I wish I could share photos in the podcast where you have an early leafing cultivar right around maybe middle of May, right next to a, a late leafing cultivar. And the, the early leafing is almost fully foliated. It's maybe 80% of the way there. And then the late leafing cultivar doesn't have a leaf on it. And they were sitting right next to each other. And so it was a really interesting photo because it showed the stark contrast between the, the different timings. And again, probably because of their origins from a, a latitude perspective. Um, so it was interesting to think of, you know, taking advantage of all this variation that we have. And black walnut just represented a, a good starting point because it inherently, even like the normal species that you just find growing out of a crack in the ground, they're already late leafing, but then we have these other special cultivars that are even more, more so. And then once they are foliated, once the leaves are on the tree, it's pretty sparse canopy. So because it's a pioneer species, and that's one pattern I, I've observed is those pioneer species that grow early on in the life of a forest that are shade intolerant, that really want a lot of sun, they tend to have more sparse canopy, which is kind of interesting to think about that they come in early, they want a lot of sun, but they're also willing to share. That's the way I think about, about it. So they're, uh, they're allowing sunlight to come through the gaps in their leaves and the gaps in their stem, and it helps grow the shade, the shade tolerant tree species that usually have wider leaves to capture more sunlight. So black walnut was already poised to, to be a really good tree crop for work in this area. And then on the nut side, it had a lot, uh, a lot to go. Is that... Do you want to talk a little bit about the 
the the produ- nut production of, of black walnut? I kind of want to just uh, elaborate a little bit on what you were saying or try to sure. understand it better. So basically, the reason for this desire for late leafing characteristics is because of the timing with the winter wheat and the harvest. And the goal is that essentially you identify a specific cultivar that a farmer can plant it like that same cultivar in an entire row. Um, but and then in doing that, isn't that sort of creating like these, like it's kind of like creating a new monoculture in a way, or I wonder how that affects the wildlife in the region or the, I'm sure that it supports, you know, tons of different species of moths. And is that a consideration where it seems like those two things would kind of be in disjunction with one another, those two different ideas of productivity, but then also all of the ecosystem services that this landscape would provide. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. And I definitely thought about that a lot. One of the things that uh, one of my colleagues was looking at was the genetic basis for for this late leaf out uh, capacity for black walnut. And what we found is that there's a pretty strong genetic component, of course, which you'd imagine is so, right? There's there's an explanation for why. It's not just environmental. There's a, there's a gene governing this. And this was beyond the scope of my, my work, but uh, at least in in chestnut, uh, oftentimes if there's a tree that has traits that are really desirable, grafting is for a couple of reasons is not desirable for for chestnuts. But the seeds will be taken, or the nuts will be taken from from a chestnut tree and planted, so that there is genetic diversity. Maybe it's a, a full sib family. Like full sib means that you can almost think of the trees as brothers and sisters, uh, and they all have the same mom and dad. Like that's kind of the language that we were using in the lab. It's, it's kind of funny, but it's really helpful because especially when you're new to genetics, uh, then a half sib family would be a group of trees that has the same mother. So they all were collected from the same tree, but the pollen parent could have been, you know, there could be hundreds of fathers. So basically what you're saying is that you could cross two of these cultivars. You have the, you have the known parentage and then the seedling, like the black walnut seeding seedlings of the two latest ones could be planted out in a row. And then ideally they would have pretty similar leaf out times. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, and like like I said, that's not. So there's also this idea of um, heritability in genetics, where you could say, okay, there's a there's a gene that that controls uh, late leaf out time or really great quality nuts. But then the question is, and this has to be proven, is will that pass down reliably from generation to generation, or is it a gene, but it's it's going to get randomly assembled in the next gen- generation and you can't rely on the seedlings. Almost like that idea of does it come true to type or is it going to have more random random mutations or, or random recombinations? But yeah, to address your question, so that so that would be one, one way to get around this is to collect genetics from a pool of trees or collect nuts from a, a late leafing tree and be planting those out as opposed to a grafted clone, you know, as a monoculture, as you put it. And, and thankfully, what I found was that there are several cultivars that are late leafing that can be used. And so you don't have to rely on just, just one cultivar. And then black walnut's great for woodpeckers. I saw lots of woodpeckers on black walnut. There's plenty of different types of insects that use black walnut as a host. The, the nuts, of course, are probably one of the, the, the main contributions that a, a walnut tree has to its ecosystem. But if those are collected for people, then wildlife has to use what's left over. But as far as a nectary, the, there's not really any nectar to a, to a black walnut because it's a wind-pollinated species. So it doesn't need to have showy, beautiful flowers. Um, although the flowers are they're a little primordial, but they're, they're not bad-looking. They can have some red and green in there. 
uh, but they're pretty small. They're not super showy. They don't really have a smell other than the regular black walnut smell. If you've ever smelled the leaves or the, hu- the hulls or husks, there's a pretty distinct kind of citrus smell, but it's not really attracting any nectaries. But I understand what you're saying in terms of wanting diversity on the landscape. And so, but then again, also too, there's this, uh, there was this other struggle that I had where, um, and I know there's some people that have really great ideas on how to have your cake and eat it too. But, you know, I think with agroforestry, we're really just taking steps in the right direction. And, you know, really the, the best of all worlds would be a multi-strata, you know, polyculture of many different uh, tree species from different genetic backgrounds that are creating this resilient system. I think a stepping stone to that is just going from like cropland, monocropped corn or monocrop grain to a system that has trees and grains on it. And even if it is a, a single cultivar system, that's not ideal. And it's also kind of a vulnerable system because there are diseases that affect walnut. And if those diseases get worse, that will wipe out your whole planting. Like everyone knows the, the problems with monoculture, agriculture. And so we don't want to repeat those same mistakes. But I think as we start to, as a country and as a, a region, dip our toes into doing more agroforestry, I think the first step is just finding a suite of cultivars that will work. And then we can learn how to combine them for genetic diversity and for resiliency, uh, especially in the face of climate change. Yeah, and I think that sort of full SIB approach of rows of genetically different trees, but from parentage that you you know know how to have the traits that you want, assuming that they're passed down, is a um, pretty interesting way to go. Okay, so another thing I think we should really talk about here, because you know we're a decent way into the episode so far, and we haven't talked about Juglone at all. Oh yeah, there's got to be at least one person who's listening to this podcast who's had experience with black walnut tree killing their apple tree that was planted too close to it. Let's dive into that a little bit. Give a rundown of what Juglone is for someone who's never heard of it before, and how it may impact these systems, or why it doesn't impact these systems. All right. Yeah, let's dive in. Definitely not an expert on, on Juglone. I really focused on the above ground competition, but Juglone, of course, came up. And uh, for those who, who don't know, Juglone is a chemical compound produced by plants in the, the Juglans genus. It's exuded from the roots. It's also found in the, the hulls, the, the green hulls of the walnut, and then also the, the leaves as they fall uh, onto the ground and decompose also have have juglone in them and it inhibits the in some cases it can inhibit the germination of certain tree species and in other cases or not tree species uh, a whole suite of different herbaceous plants too and then other cases actually can diminish the growth and even kill species that are living next to the black walnut it tends not to be an issue until later in life of the the walnut where that juglone can really start to build up year after year I think maybe around year 10 uh, or between year 10 and 15, it starts to, to become an issue. But it doesn't affect all crops or doesn't affect all plants the same if they're exposed to exposed to juglone. So in an agri- agroforestry perspective, corn and soybeans, if you were to plant black walnut with them, will be affected. They'll grow less and they'll grow less as, as you get closer to the black walnut. And then you, you can see in the field that they'll they'll grow larger, taller, uh, the further you get away. So there's a dose-dependent effect, I think the people in medicine would call that. But then there's other other crops that don't seem to have as much uh, effect from 
from the juglon with with winter wheat and barley i think it's either that they're not affected by the the secretions that juglone in the soil and i think there's that aspect there's the physiological aspect of that they're more tolerant to it and then also when they're growing at the end of fall beginning of winter they're seeded and they they grow throughout the winter as they're really doing more photosynthesis and growing in the spring and then creating their crop in the late spring early summer the black walnut is only starting to leaf out and do its thing. And I think, uh, I don't know very much about the timing of juggle and release, but my, my guess is that there's an additional effect when you have this complementarity in terms of timing uh, in the system that the black walnut will not affect those crops as much because they're not growing at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally does. And so it's, it's definitely a consideration. You, you don't want to be trying out alley cropping or agroforestry with black walnut without doing your research first about which species are tolerant and which species are sensitive to juglone, but there's some, some good resources online uh, to look into that. Okay, so let's talk about the nuts. I found it pretty interesting that like globally, it's not, it's, it's not even like necessarily the nuts that are the, like, uh, you know, of, of the thing that falls from the tree, you have the nut and the shell. And it seems like the shells are used more than the nut meat is at like an industrial scale. Like they're broken up and the brittle shells are used for all sorts of different applications. Yeah, I think I think NASA uses it to clean spaceships or space shuttles. I think that's one of the most interesting factoids about black walnut. So I think maybe maybe even in space, I'm not sure. I, I heard something about that, that it's used as like an abrasive uh, where it can be almost like a sandblaster and it can blast off debris and gunk and that sort of thing. It just goes to show you that like, I mean, as someone who's a plant nerd related specifically to like fruit and nut trees, I'm always thinking about the food and the reason why I would plant, you know, one of these systems or plant a black walnut tree would be because I want to have the walnut meat. There's so many other different products that come from these systems. You know, there's the timber, there's the shell that can be used for a million different aspects. I don't know. Uh, Let's dive into the you know, the nut, let's get to the nut of it. And I want to hear what you have to say. I was going to add in, um, there's some interesting specialty products too, um, that I discovered when I was you know, studying black walnut. Hammonds is one of the, the biggest black walnut producers. They're based out of uh, Missouri. And I think they make that, ab- that abrasive hull compound I was talking about, but they also process the walnuts for meat. Uh, they press the, the walnuts for uh, oil, there's black walnut oil, but again, these are like small specialty products. And then when you press the oil, you're also left over with the, the protein. So black walnuts, pretty much out of any any tree nut that I know of, black walnut has the highest protein content percentage-wise. And so it actually makes a really nice protein powder. Um, and I have yet to try it, but that's on my list. So there's a lot of potential for other uses. There's also the, the no, Nocino, the Italian liqueur uh, that can be made using black walnut. It's traditionally made with the uh, Regia variety, the more common uh, walnut, but you can make it with black walnut. And there's also black walnut bitters that you might see at a fancy cocktail bar. I always like seeing that in place that I go. It's a reminder of how cool black walnut is. But as far as the, the nut meat goes, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't quite care for it when I tried it for the first time. There's a lot of ver- difference in variety in the, the flavors. And also the, it's kind of sensitive to storage. So if it's not stored correctly or you know dried correctly, it can, it can have some off flavors. But 
most of the time it, it, it ripens pretty well and it ages pretty well. It kind of has a, a complex flavor, maybe similar. I mean, it tastes like walnut, but it has like, like wine and tannins and some fruitiness to it that I don't get from any other nut. So it's very unique. Um, it's, it's got a pretty complex biochemistry. <clears throat> some people at the University of Missouri have done some tests on the specifically that little, like, you know, when you're eating a walnut and you have that sort of papery skin around the nut that sometimes sticks to it and sometimes peels off. But that, uh, there's a, there's a name for it. That's going to bug me that I probably knew when I was a grad student, but I can't remember it right now, but there's that skin around the walnut nut meat. And that's where a lot of really interesting antioxidants are that, uh, that was found to have some anti-cancer activity, anti-heart, heart disease activity, and also there's there's vitamins and minerals, so it's a really healthy healthy nut to consume. And like you said, there's issues now with really thick shell uh, and really low kernel meat and a lot of the wild varieties. So if you were to just go around, and I did when I was in Missouri, I, when I was just jogging and I'd see a black walnut tree, I'd be like, oh, I wonder what the nut meat's like. And I would just take a bag right where I found it and throw it in my backpack, and then I'd have my own little... Uh, set up where I was t- finding out what the wild varieties were like and how they compare to the cultivars. And yeah, sure enough, there were some that were, were okay, but most of the time they're like 10% nut beet, 90% shell, or maybe if they were really good, they'd be 20, 20% kernel. But the kinds that we were finding in the cultivar collection that were selections from the wild over, you know, probably the past hundred years of people around the U.S., maybe 50 to 60 different cultivars, you know, testing those, you know, you, if you get above, you start to see ones that go above 30% kernel. That's when you start to be able to, to grow black walnut as a profitable crop, because when you bring them to the processor, if you bring wild black walnuts and you say, I've got, you know, a thousand pounds, that's one price. But if you say, you know, I'm, I have a thousand pounds and they're all at this, uh, from this cultivar, or they're all uh, really good genetic stock, and they're going to be 30% plus kernel, then you're going to be able to charge a lot more uh, and get paid a lot more for, for black walnut, um, which is a, another big problem to its commercialization is that it's not that profitable for collectors, which is traditionally how it's being collected from the wild. And, uh, but it's not a very profitable uh, crop to, to bring in and process. But that's why this genetic work is really important. While we're on the topic of you know, the nut to shell ratio or the nut meat to shell ratio. Also, by the way, I think the thing is called a pellicle, the little skin. Yes. Thank you. That's right. On the topic of the nut to nut meat to shell ratio, was there any consideration about using heart nuts instead of black walnuts? Because I mean, heart nuts, you know, are pretty amazing in that you can just, especially that, especially some of the cultivars uh, at the ag experiment station in Connecticut that we went to, Several years ago, there's a cultivar there called Rhodes that is pretty phenomenal. And I mean, you, I've cracked it open just with like a rock and another rock right there under the tree. It splits open perfectly. It's not broken up. The meat is full. It's not broken into a bunch of little bits. And you would think that that would be something that would then increase the value of the of the nut crop as opposed to black walnut where often the result is like a lot of little pieces of, of walnut. Um, at least like if I'm going to buy a a thing of mixed nuts from the store, I like it when I have my full, <laughs> you know, full complete nut in there rather than a bunch of the little bits. And I think that there's probably a higher consumer value there. 
definitely. So was there any consideration given to that, or or is there are there reasons why Juglans, Xylanthifolia, Cordiformis wouldn't work in these systems? Well, one of the things I've I've realized working with trees and doing research with trees is is a lot of the work is I mean it's a very long term pursuit, and you you're building off of the work that someone started. 20 years ago, and they're building off the work that someone else started 20 years prior to that when you're working in a university setting. And in my case, there was this really large collection of black walnut that had been established in the 90s, maybe the late 80s too. And that represented this really great resource, just a genetic resource to look into. And culturally, black walnut also had a lot more name recognition and funding behind it too. And I think that plays a role of why it, it was emphasized by uh, the funding available and the, the research interest available for the different tree species. Hartnut's interesting. I, I don't really, I think I've maybe tried two or three before, but from what you're telling me, that it sounds like it's uh, it has a lot of potential. But the other thing you need to consider too is not just the quality, but the quantity too. So it's, you're trying to like maximize for multiple things at the same time. Like if it produces really thin shell, if the nuts crack out fully, that's great. But if it if it has you know only twenty percent of the yield of of some of these black walnut trees that are really heavy producers in some cases, then even though it's nice that it it has high kernel yield, that it doesn't get offset by the the productivity. I'm not saying that that's the case with hard nut, but that could be one reason why it hasn't caught on as much in in the Midwest. But I think all of these nut nut crops need more resources put to them because from a calorie per square foot point of view, I mean, they're, they blow everything out of the, the water in terms of productivity, land productivity, especially protein, the little amount of nutrients and water that they need to, to produce these staggering amounts of calories and feed people and wildlife. Um, I think the return on investments really substantial there. So I agree. I think we need to be studying hard nut too. Yeah. I mean, it, pros and cons, I'm sure, you know, there's pros and cons for every one of the different tree species that could be included in these systems. In this case, I mean, heart nut's not native, so it probably serves more generalists in terms of, uh, you know, moths, caterpillars, whatever, um, as opposed to black walnut being native and having co-evolved with probably a whole host of different insect species and animal species. But that'd be a whole different episode. Um, one thing that you talked about earlier was about the potential like pests or diseases, I think. And, and like with chestnut, you know, there's chestnut weevil. I've definitely eaten a handful of chestnut weevils in my day. Are there any similar pests for black walnut or is it mostly pest and disease free? There are pests and there are diseases, but in my opinion, none of them will stop black walnut from, from growing and becoming more popular. That might change with, with climate change and that might change by the region where things are warmer and wetter, those diseases, uh, there's a fungal disease called thousand cankers that affects black walnut. And then there's also the one that we're, we were more familiar with that we had a lot more of in Missouri was just anthracnose, which most people are familiar with. It affects a lot of different tree species, little black dots on the leaves. It tended to affect the leaves and cause early defoliation where the leaves would just drop off before they would have otherwise. And that could affect the ripening and the quality, for the most part, it wasn't a huge factor in the product productivity of the trees. They just, they lost their leaves a little bit sooner, but 
even if it only affects you know 10% of the yield or, or 5% of the yield when you're when you're trying to create the you know the ultimate cultivar or suite of cultivars you do want to be selecting for those that are going to be resistant to anthracnose uh, and won't require especially if you're trying to retain being able to grow these these species without any chemical treatments you want to be genetically selecting for the trees that naturally for one reason or another we don't necessarily know the the mechanism behind it but are able to to ward off these diseases so and then yeah pests there's a a twig beetle that i think we collaborated with purdue on some research where they were taking different let's see different branches off of different cultivars and infecting the branches with the the beetle to see which ones had the the most resistance to kind of be looking ahead because we don't really it's not really a problem yet but uh, if we can start to be grafting and growing the trees that we know are going to be resistant to a pest that's going to happen 10 years from now it's a really good proactive way to to have assurance against it Uh, but it's a pretty disease resistant tree it's that's one of the things i liked about black walnut is it it just produces it just grows give it lots of sun needs a needs a bit of water it's not a it doesn't need a ton but it, it it's like more of a messic species it's able to, to hold its own especially some of the known cultivars so what were some of the cultivars that you were you didn't name drop any cultivars and i'm sure that folks who are listening to this will want to know specifically which ones were the late leafing species that could work well in these sort of systems for them yeah, so the one that, that by and large leafed out the latest and then also thankfully produced a really good quality nut, both in quality and quantity, is called hay. And so that that variety was one of the latest leafing. And presumably, like my work, I was measuring the, the light infiltration too and finding that the trees that leafed out later also had more sparse canopies, which were, you know, it's very convenient. Um, and it's also nice that these species are producing a nut crop that would actually be much more profitable to grow than just wild species too. The cultivar Myers is also a very good late leafing species. But yeah, there's a, a list of them, but those are the first two that, that come to mind. But people can find my paper. We'll put it in the show notes to, to read more about the different varieties that I, I found that that looked interesting for agroforestry systems. It occurs to me that the late leafing characteristic would also be a really sought after characteristic amongst the species, not just the species, but all tree crops, especially in the Northeast where we have these high frequency late spring frost events that wipe out people's entire orchards like, like last season. Yeah. You know, because our winters are getting warmer, but the, frequency of these spring frost events isn't changing you know like it's just i think if anything climate change might be making the situation worse not better so i don't know like having a tree that leaves out late in your orchard let's say it's a diverse orchard of black walnut and chestnut whatever it might be best to to prioritize that late leafing characteristic to be able to kind of hedge your bets against what's to come in the next century who knows yeah that's a great point also, uh, you know, just thinking about the climate range, if, you know, black walnut's hardy from like four to nine, I think. And if you're going to, if you're, if you live in the South in zone nine already, maybe it's not a good time to be planting black walnut because you know that your climate zone is going to change and move into like zone 10 or in the next however many years. Sure. But for Northern growers who are in zone, you know, might be in like marginal 
ranges or zone 5a or something like that who are going to be in zone eight in however many years from now 100 years or more that might be a consideration i don't know is that something that you think about oh yeah absolutely that actually brings me to one of the more interesting things that i did with my work at the university was doing hybrids between black walnut and persian walnut juglans regia because that's going to really open up the genetic pool for both of those species to be planted more broadly and specifically what you were talking about with the the climates that are going to get warmer and also just for general nut quality too i think that's maybe another reason to your previous question why black walnut was emphasized is because it's it's got compatibility with the persian walnut and so we can take the pollen from a species that is going to be much more adapted to not necessarily more dry conditions but definitely more warm conditions like a Juglans regia and introduce that into the gene pool. And that will really create a lot more variation. Um, and so that was, you know, I didn't get a chance to really see what my crosses are doing or how they're doing because they're maybe two years old in a, in a nursery somewhere in Missouri. But it's, it's very likely that some of these experiments with uh, hybridizing black walnut with the Persian walnut will introduce ones that can stand up to different climates and can be tested in different regions uh, to see which crosses, which hybrids, you know, really, really work best in different, different climates. But yeah, to your point too, I mean, you know, yes, it's true that these late leafing cultivars are going to be able to avoid the late spring frost, but they also may not be appropriate for other, other climates too. So it's, it's just because we've identified, you know, maybe a, a three or four different cultivars that are appropriate for grain alley cropping in the Midwest, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the best for alley cropping in, you know, the mid-Atlantic or in more Western climates too. It's going to look very different uh, depending on what those, those spring temperatures are and what those winter temperatures are, and especially as they start to get warmer. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with the, the hybrids. It, they tend not to, to hybridize very readily or oh, they'll hybridize, but then the, the offspring won't really produce very much. I don't quite understand why. But I think it's more of a numbers game. If you you have to make maybe a couple hundred, maybe a thousand different crosses to get, uh, I'm just pulling numbers out, but to get, you know, maybe 10% of those that will, will actually be interesting to look at where they'll have the the nut quality of Regia and then the cold, cold hardiness of Nigra. But once we have those, I think it will really expand the range and ensure that both of those gene pools can be represented and who knows, maybe black walnut will be a profitable crop as it is in California where I'm in right now. And if we can replicate that in these colder climates, I think that's, that's really interesting economically and socially for, for some of these areas. I didn't realize that you had a whole family of plant babies out there. We should, uh, we should go visit them. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. I, I want to get back to either go to the symposium that they they hold each year. Um, there's the Northern Nut Growers Association that I wasn't able to get to either this year, but maybe I'll just have to to drive out and, and show up to, to check on my my crosses. I attended the symposium uh, virtually. It was it was pretty great. It was on Silva Pasture this year. That's right. You sent me the link. I'm sure that some folks who listen to this podcast will have attended it as well. Talking about the Midwest versus other areas of the country, it's like we need a center for agroforestry in Massachusetts or, you know, one in every region of the United States. Oh, I agree. 
Okay, so yeah, I think that we we did a decent job of kind of summarizing a several years worth of research into a palatable podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little I'm a little rusty. It's been a, been a while, but uh, it's nice to to sort of get refreshed on this stuff. There was one thing that you wrote that I thought was a kind of a great thing to wrap up with. You said increasing landscape diversity offers solutions to both ecological degradation and economic instability. And I thought that that sentence was just a great sort of elevator pitch to the question of why agroforestry. And I think it's a kind of something that we can all just linger and think about in terms of why we're interested in these systems and looking back to the past few years with COVID and empty store shelves and the future, which is pretty unknown in terms of how the climate will impact agriculture in this country, that economic instability part of it is a big deal. Any last minute thoughts on that? Uh, no, that, that does sum it up nicely. You're right. Um, yeah, just, uh, I should probably mention that my advisor was really influential in both the thesis and then the published manuscript or uh, excuse me, the published paper, Ron Reford, and then also thanks to Mark Cogshell for planting and grafting and caring for all the trees that I studied for, oh, 20 years. So he knew these, he knew these trees very intimately. And so it was, it was great talking to someone who could speak for the trees and, and knew them like they were people. Great researcher and scientist too. Um, and there's two other people who are on your paper as well, Nicholas Meyer and Sarah Lovell. Oh yeah. Dr. Meyer was a postdoc that assisted me with a lot of the data analysis, more particularly in the, let's see, the second chapter and third chapter. And now he works more predominantly with chestnuts doing breeding. And then uh, Dr. Lovell was the head of the agroforestry program when I was attending and also a, a member of my committee. And she was perhaps one of the first people that I heard, first researchers that I heard from the Center for Agroforestry before I even joined there. I watched some of her lectures uh, it was really inspiring to learn about agroforestry and agroecology from her. And then, of course, I took some courses with her during my time at the center. So, yeah, definitely it's a that's the other thing I realized is you make this thesis and you call it your own. But really, you're just building on top of other people's work and and also getting lots of input and feedback as you're as you're doing it, which actually made it really fun. Yeah, sounds like it. So if anybody wants to learn more about this, we'll have the uh, link to the first chapter of Ben's thesis in the show notes. Also highly recommend checking out the Center for Agroforestry on YouTube. They have all of their symposia recorded from past years, various speakers, really great, interesting stuff on the topic of alley cropping, other agroforestry practices like silvopasture, which well, I guess we'll probably have to do a silvopasture episode because we didn't get to talk about it in this episode, but it kind of deserves its whole own thing. Definitely. I have, I actually have someone who, uh, who would be really good to bring on for that. Awesome. Thanks for sticking with us, everyone. And we'll see you next time.